Are you ready for good talk? And hello there, Peter Vansbridge here with Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson. It's uh, our Friday episode of The Bridge, Good Talk. And as always, I don't know what it is. Fridays, there's always something to talk about. And it certainly is again this week. So let's... Uh, Let's get at it. I mean, it's been quite a past seven or eight days ever since the prime minister announced the heating oil uh, issue, and it's been bubbling up. Lots of reaction to it. Not surprisingly, as we suggested, there probably would be last Friday. Lots of reaction across the country. Lots of people feel that why why not me? Why didn't I get the break? Same break that heating oil customers have. Uh, so that. That's been at play, but it's deeper than that. It's more than that. Uh, In the last week, we've seen a liberal senator tied closely to the Jean Chrétien days um, raise questions about the prime minister's leadership, even suggesting that, you know, really it's time to step down. There's been lots of comparisons to the old walk in the snow stuff from the uh, Pierre Trudeau days. Um, We've had, we even had actually yesterday, and I want to be very careful about how, I described this, but you had Mark Carney not saying he wanted to be leader or he was ready to run for the leadership, but saying someday in the future, it's possible that I might want to be running for the leadership. So not, not a definitive, definitive like right now, but certainly throwing his name more convincingly into the circle of discussion that he's been a part of for quite some time, part of in the sense that we've talked about it. A lot of other people have talked about Mark Carney's potential if the leadership spot ever came open in the Liberal Party. So you have these things happening, and quite frankly, uh, I don't think we've witnessed in the eight years that Justin Trudeau has been the leader of the party and the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, I don't think we've witnessed any kind of discussion out in the open like this. We've certainly heard the buzz around. That's That's been a given in the last couple of years. But here it's like kind of on the table now, a discussion about his leadership. How's he reacted yesterday? He was, he was kind of laughed it off, pretended he didn't know who this guy was, the senator. Um, and he was just pretending. It was clear he knew who he was and knew what he'd said, but he kind of laughed it off. So... Where are we on this story? Not the heating oil story. Not the climate change story. Not the carbon tax story. But on the Justin Trudeau story. Where are we, um, Chantal? Um, it's impossible to uh, divorce uh, the acceleration of the chatter about leadership of the Liberal Party from the events uh, of the past week and the announcement on heating oil and climate change. Uh, Because what did that show? It showed a prime minister who at this point uh, would not stand up to his Atlantic caucus uh, and under duress made the announcement on heating oil. And when I say duress, let me define it. Under threat of the resignation of some of his Atlantic Canada MP. This is a prime minister who is now operating under the threat of another resignation, that of his minister of the environment, Stephen Guilbeault, who has made it quite clear that if there is another carve out and the pressure has been mounting, uh, he will resign. So what we have witnessed in public over the past week is a weakening of the uh, Prime Minister's leadership position vis-à-vis his caucus, but also vis-à-vis the country uh, and vis-à-vis his allies in the House of Commons, who will on Monday vote against the government with the Conservatives on a motion to extend the carve-out on the heating oil to natural gas, uh, etc. The leadership stuff. Well, yes, Percy Down, I don't think, goes to Christmas parties at uh, Rideau uh, Cottage since uh, uh, Justin Trudeau was elected prime minister. He is part of the group of liberal senators who, who were unceremoniously shown the door 
when Justin Trudeau said, I do not want to have senators in the caucus. He has since then never been anything close to an insider uh, in liberal circles. But as you and I know, having watched these kinds of events and other circumstances, the people who usually come out with uh, in public, show their face on leadership issues, are usually people who have little or nothing to lose. A few people have less to lose than a senator from a has-been era uh, whose main impact or main claim to fame is to have been uh, the chief of staff to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. But what that does, a couple of things. There was the timing of this open, uh, this op-ed from Senator Down. And then the interview uh, in the Globe and Mail and the statement by Mark Carney that uh, he was not uh, ruling out a leadership bid. On that, let me tell you that if I ever gave an interview to say, well, if Peter is going to step down from his job as host of Good Talk, I'm not ruling out applying for it. It would presume that I want your job because my normal answer, since I don't want your job, would be I would be sorry that Peter steps down. <laughs> End of comment. So you don't usually say you're not ruling something out for when you're applying for a job unless you want the job. So I believe Mark Carney does uh, want the job. Of the two things that happened, the Percy Down and the Mark Carney, the one that drove the PMO crazy this week was Mark Carney not just for the expression of interest, which is a way of putting someone who is an outsider to the Trudeau years, who has a record on the fiscal side as a former bank governor, and who happens to have serious thoughts about climate change, putting himself in the window as in, if this guy can't uh, is now blinking on climate or on fiscal responsibility, there is always me sitting uh, there And it didn't help uh, the PMO feel better to think of a couple of things. The one, the first was that Mark Carney did say also publicly that he would not have done a carve out on heating oil. He would have found another way to help. Uh, and in this, he was supported by former federal environment minister, Catherine McKenna, very publicly. But there's also paranoia that sets in and the notion that maybe Percy Down is doing the bidding for his former boss, Jean Chrétien. Something that I don't find particularly credible, but but it does tell you that we have reached the stage where uh, the way that people around Justin Trudeau think is that even paranoid people do have actual enemies. All right, Chantel set the table. Bruce, what are you going to pick off that table? Well, I'm disappointed that if you decide to give up good talk that Chantal isn't interested in it. I, <laughs> I had been kind of counting on that just in case, you know, we need that. Um, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get over it. Uh, You're not ruling out applying. Is that what you're saying? I, I, I would, I would rule it out. <laughs> I want to be clear. Because yeah, I do think that not ruling something out is an expression of uh, of interest. I don't think there's there's any other way to interpret um, interpret it. Um, but let me go back to the starting point. Um, what's been happening in the last couple of weeks? I think that when we talked about the aftermath of the 2021 election, um, not because we're clairvoyant necessarily, but because we've just seen a lot of politics that we could imagine that we were going to be in a series of events that feel like the events that are happening now, except if um, Justin Trudeau and the people around him took that December, that, that 2021 outcome as a real warning sign that they needed to rejuvenate, that they needed to establish a, a kind of a stronger agenda, more effective communications program, uh, more, uh, more effort to reach the kind of voters who looked like they might drift away if the conservatives ever got uh, a leader that they felt good about or a program that didn't make people anxious. And here we are. I think it's reasonable to say that the, the liberals have struggled to uh, establish and own uh, an agenda of their own. Uh, they've been on the defensive a lot. Uh, their communications programming has not been what it um, could be or should be if they want to uh, to get off the uh, the defensive. 
the big reset plan for the shuffle in the summer um, didn't take. Uh, that's maybe putting it um, mildly. And so they find themselves uh, having another chapter of the same story. And I always felt that it would be inevitable, just given the ticking of the clock, that at some point um, in a party as dynamic as the Liberal Party, filled with a lot of people who have a lot of energy to try to get things done, a lot of people who feel as though their seats might be in jeopardy in an election held anytime soon, that people were going to start to ratchet up the pressure on what's generally called the center. Now, the center can be the people around the prime minister. It can be the people running the campaign. It can be the prime minister himself. It's all of a a kind, really, at this point. On the uh, And I think that the... Um, it's a mistake for people in politics who are in the incumbent's role to be either shocked or overly um, to be shocked by that is a mistake because it, it happens and it's going to happen and you have to know that it's going to happen. And part of the job of managing uh, in a situation like that is being able to kind of observe, attend to, defuse, um, you, you know, shape um, the way in which you're doing things so that you're not to Chantal's point, at risk of defections or resignations or public outbursts, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that this may be the moment, the last week or two, uh, where that sense of risk has fully materialized for Mr. Trudeau and the people around him. And it so it'll be interesting to see how they deal with um, these kinds of pressures, whether it's uh, Senator Downs' comments or more people talking about whether there, you know, if there was a leadership race at some point in the future, who would be interested or not. I didn't find there there was anything surprising or um, inappropriate about what Mark Carney said uh, in response to questions about either the carbon pricing decision that the government made or the possibility that he might enter politics if there was an opening uh, at some point in the future. Um the fact that he's not in politics or in government right now and felt like it was appropriate to help people who are suffering energy poverty, but not to unwind or to call into question the government's commitment to carbon pricing. Perfectly understandable, logical position. I happen to think that his position is the right policy position. Uh, but I think he said it in a very respectful way. As I recall reading his comments, he said that he thought that no government or no prime minister of Canada had done as much on climate change as Justin Trudeau in this liberal government. He just took issue with this one particular decision. As to whether or not it's wrong to say if the job opens up at some point I'm interested in, I think it's probably prudent to do that if you are interested in it because Chantel's uh, point, I think, is also that that people are planning, organizing, um, imagining uh, what their runs might look like. And, um, you know, if you're, if you are interested and you don't communicate that somehow, um, that can be a mistake too. All right. Uh, You know, obviously if, if you're interested and, you know, you want to start off with a seat somewhere and there are openings um, for a seat. So it's not just the prime minister's job if it ever becomes open. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what he does on, in, in that vein. Let me ask, uh, you know, there's a couple of points, more than a couple actually, that the two of you have raised that I think are worth you know, at least a moment or two on. Chantel, the vote on Monday, if it's Monday, uh, that the NDP have signaled they, they're going to support the, the Conservatives. Should we look at that as any more than just one vote on one issue and then move on? Or could this lead to the fall of the government? It's not a confidence vote unless uh, the government wakes up uh, on Monday morning and declares it to be. But otherwise, unless the government does that, it's a non-binding motion on the government. So even if it passes, uh, it does not mean that the government uh, needs to do anything about it. There is, um, so far, at least at this time today, I do not know what the Bloc Québécois will be doing, uh, whether they will vote with the Conservatives or not. But 
the story is playing out really differently in Quebec in the sense that Quebec runs its own carbon pricing scheme. Uh, it's part of a cap and trade system. And, and so there hasn't been, you know, and a lot of people heat their homes with uh, electricity. So the debate this week has mostly been about the future of Hydro-Quebec and how much it may cost down the line. To, to use electricity. So I'm not sure what where where the block would sit on this. Uh, they, it, it, it's not a, a big issue for them. But the danger to the government is also that um, what the conservatives uh, are going to do with this vote is they're going to point at every MP from Ontario or Alberta or BC and Manitoba who have voted against the motion to say, look at how your MPs have uh, refused to extend the same benefits to you as they have accepted uh, to extend to the people who use eating oil who are massively concentrated in the Atlantic provinces. And that's the real danger uh, to the government. Yeah. Is more internal divisions uh, and and more more turmoil internally uh, because it you know I was listening to Bruce and I was thinking about all the things I heard this week there are now liberals in private who speak more harshly of Justin Trudeau than conservatives in public uh, and one of them uh, and not someone who has spent the past uh, decade in the penis gallery throwing stuff at Justin Trudeau for not doing the right thing but one of them said um, at this point, the only thing we we were talking about legacy and how Trudeau has actually damaged this climate change legacy by what he has done, and he has sacrificed the moral high ground on the conservatives on climate change. This will always be thrown back at him in the next election campaign. And and this person said the only thing Justin Trudeau cares about at this point is to remain prime minister. And I am thinking the liberals, when I look at them, there are exceptions. Ministers who are doing their job and trying hard, but by and large, the liberals are now consumed with two things, Justin Trudeau with trying to win an election or secure his position, and other liberals increasingly discussing leadership uh, and how to position themselves both for the election and for a possible leadership campaign. And in both cases, not counting on Justin Trudeau in that mix in a positive way. Bruce. Yeah, I was going to say that I think the motion is almost as though we're watching the conservatives script another television ad, uh, and they've created an option for the NDP to play one role in that ad or another role, and the NDP chose um, what I think if if any of us were advising them would say is the smart role for them to take. Um, the you know, I think that the reason I say it's an ad is I think that the conservatives, obviously, you can just tell from the body language and the sense of enthusiasm they have about the way that this carbon price issue has evolved, is that they feel as though um, they've actually had uh, the single best gift from the government that they could hope to have. And when Pierre Polyev said, as he did the other day, let's have a carbon price election, I didn't see that coming uh, two years ago. I thought the last thing that he's really going to want to do is say, he, he's going to want to talk about axe to tax and, and all of that sort of thing um, for a good period of time. But eventually, he's not going to want an election to be about carbon pricing, except now I think he does. Or, or at least he's saying he does now based on the math that he sees. And I can understand why he would come to that conclusion, because the liberal position um, draws into question whether they really believe the carbon tax is working, whether they really believe that it was well designed, whether they really believe that it's essential as a way to fight uh, climate change or whether there are other ways, all of which um, are serendipitous for uh, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives. So they've been given a, a real gift, which I think is probably the bigger issue for Justin Trudeau right now is not the public response to this, because it will be the case that many people will not have even noticed this issue. Many people will not be doing any political math in their own minds in terms of their voting behavior on the basis of it. Um, 
but within the liberal movement or liberal party, um, it's kind of shaken confidence uh, in what it is that they're going to go to the people with next time and whether or not they can pull off a fourth victory by putting together a more compelling and, and, um, and convincing plan. The other uh, point that I wanted to follow uh, up on uh, Chantel was the, the environment minister's position, Gibo's position. Um, because uh, you seem to feel that any further carve out and he's gone, which would throw a dagger into the heart of the, the Liberals' climate change policy overall and in its environmental policy. Would that be why we saw the Prime Minister in his one you know, truly vigorous moment this week where he went, where he said, that's it, there'll never, ever be another carve-out on, on uh, anything to do with our, uh, our policy on carbon tax. Um, was that why he was so adamant? Have they... I assume they've um, talked this week, uh, but they, both sides have, have have made their positions very clear, at least for for this moment. Well, I don't feel that uh, just that uh, Stephen Gilbo could resign. I know uh, uh, that he would resign. Why do I know that? Because I watched a show called Les Coulisses du Pouvoir, which runs on Sunday. And last Sunday, Stephen Gilbo gave an interview about the announcement and said. Uh, quite clearly, that the honest watch has environment. There would not be another carve out. The sentence was for as long as I am environment minister. Now I did kick the tires of that statement, and it is to be taken at face value. I uh, carve out uh, in the way that. Uh, it's not just the conservative premiers who are calling for it, which explains the NDP position. It's also every new Democrat leader west of Ontario uh, that is asking for a carve out for natural gas heaters. So uh, Rachel Notley uh, and as opposition leader in Alberta, uh, the new premier of Manitoba, the opposition leader in Saskatchewan. So. Whether Justin Trudeau was reacting to that by putting that line in the sand is possible. But that basically means he's painted himself in a corner. Uh, and, and what would happen if Stephen Gilbo resigned as environment minister? Seriously, what would happen would be that the last place where Justin Trudeau's credibility on climate change is not in total shreds is Quebec. But the day that Stephen Gilbo leaves, he takes with it that credibility that the government has enjoyed. Uh, and I don't know what happens after that uh, to the liberals, but it is something bad. Uh, because at that point, it's going to be open season from the Bloc Québécois uh, on the climate change pro-climate change measures front and from the conservatives on the other front. And it will be very hard to sustain uh, what is left of liberal fortress in Quebec without Stephen Gilbo, who two weeks ago, before this happened, told me, looking in my eyes, that he was committed to run again. But that is no longer a firm commitment because it is dependent on what happens between now and then. Um, Bruce, I want to... Uh... Check one thing with you before we uh, take our first break here. Uh, a number of times on this program and others, um, the discussion is centered around the depth of um, feeling on the part of Canadians about Justin Trudeau. How um, is there a deep dislike of Justin Trudeau, unlike anything we've you know witnessed before, at least in the you know kind of modern day politics, and um, you decided to actually do a little probing on this in your, in your one of your recent research studies, and there seems to be a distinction in what you're finding. So, can you explain that to us? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you asked, Peter. I feel like um, the conventional wisdom for people who are really close to politics, or at least in the social media version of people close to politics, is that Justin Trudeau is widely hated. Um, that the degree of public animus to him is uh, is extraordinary. And I know uh, Chantal and I have both said similar things in the past, which is that that's overstated. And I wanted to actually measure it to know whether or not I was um, 
to, to understand why um, this exists and whether or not it's supported by the data or whether there's something else that's going on. So I gave, we, we ran some questions at Spark um, about each of the three major national party leaders. And we asked people, not just do you like or dislike, but do you, the answer categories they gave people were, do you like him? Are you so-so on him? Do you dislike him or are you tired of him? And what I was really trying to understand is what is the comparative disadvantage right now that Justin Trudeau has with Pierre Poliev and, and uh, Jagmeet Singh? Is it that he is more hated? Is it that he is more disliked? And the answer is no, he's not. Actually, it's only about one in five people in our survey who said, I dislike Justin Trudeau, which will come as a surprise, I think, to people who kind of traffic in the idea that Justin Trudeau is hated. But I believe it, it's accurate. What's a bigger problem for Justin Trudeau is it's about 36% who say, I'm tired of him, which is a much bigger number than it is for the other leaders, um, even though both of them have been involved in politics in a high-profile way for a good long period of time. And, and so when you put together, I dislike him and I'm tired of him, you get up to 56%. You have a you know, it's like a, a politician carrying a bag of rocks on their back, trying to enter into a a race with others who don't have the same baggage in public opinion terms. Now, does it really matter if people are tired of somebody? Is that better than uh, being disliked? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think in the at the end of the day, if people aren't tuning you in, um, they might not turn out and vote. So I think that. Uh, being a political figure that people are tired of hearing from uh, can be uh, a pretty serious political liability. But I, I did want to draw the distinction between do people really dislike this person, his character, his values, his policy agenda, most of which I would say no, uh, most people don't. But does he have a challenge uh, that's unique to him heading into this election? I think he he does. Um, one more thing, and I, I'm really curious to hear what Chantal thinks about this, is I was trying to figure out why this might be a worse problem for Justin Trudeau than for, say, predecessors. And so I looked into data that others have gathered on how the public is feeling about news. And it was interesting to me. Reuters published a big study across several countries. And they documented the fact that more people are feeling stressed by news and they're tuning out news. They don't want to hear so much news. It's coming at them nonstop. It's stressing them out. It's making them feel like they should pay less attention to politics, too. At the same time, you've got a government that has been uh, kind of creating a flood of announcements uh, over time, very visible on social media. So you've got a market that wants less of this kind of communication and a government that arguably has been doing more of it. And that's a, a process that could could explain why tired of him or tired of them is a bigger factor for this government than maybe for its predecessors. I'll stop there. Okay. Well, I but thanks get, for asking. I want to get Chantel's reaction to that, but we're going to take our first break. We'll come right back on that point right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, Good Talk, the Friday episode of The Bridge right here on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel. Glad to have you with us wherever you uh, are tuning in from. Um, all right, Chantel, Bruce mentioned this distinction between basically hatred of someone, in this case, Justin Trudeau, and just tired of him. Uh, how do you see that? Uh, well, first to Bruce's last point about uh, people turning off the news uh, and suffering from stress and news fatigue. That could go some way to explain why Pierre Poilievre's uh, numbers started going up along with that of his party when the House rose last summer and he was not the center of the news every day. He was still doing stuff, but it wasn't the same in-your-face stress about this kind of stuff because it was outside the adversarial um, venue of the House of Commons. So, so that that could explain part of it. As for the um, pseudo haters between and and people who are fatigued, 
I don't think there are more Trudeau haters uh, than there were Brian Mulroney haters or Stephen Harper haters who all belonged in a category of their own. They made a lot of noise. They were probably a minority, but um, in the case of Brian Mulroney, they 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 certainly were numerous enough that uh, he decided to leave the scene. Um, and Stephen Harper, of course, lost the election. So, but I think the fatigue people are the more dangerous people, not just because they're going to stay home, but because their fatigue, yes, stems in part from having seen too much of Justin Trudeau for the past eight years. And I say that as someone who has had to have virtual lunches with the prime minister for almost two years during the pandemic, because his news conference was at 11.30, and he's always late. And I'd end up having to have Justin Trudeau across from my sandwich. And yes, it does build fatigue. But I think that fatigue goes beyond the, um, you know, I'm sick of eating um, jam every morning. I want to change in in um, the menu for my breakfast to a, this government uh, is fatigued. It doesn't have the kind of spring in its policy step that it used to have. It looks like it's all used up. It looks tired. It's, it's had a lot of crisis to, to manage. But at this point, it's a spent force. And so it's not just that voters are feeling fatigued because they're, you know, Justin Trudeau has your back thing. It's kind of grating on their nerves. Uh, but it's also that they feel that the government is too fatigued to go on. Uh, and that impression is reinforced by both the narrative that is created by the polls. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but also by the government itself. Since the, 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 since the beginning of the summer, what people have been shown of the government, the cabinet shuffle, last week's announcement, my favorite, the, the minister who discovered that uh, supermarket flyers existed and tried to tell shoppers this showed that he'd been great at getting lower prices, which ridicule things will do more to undermine credibility uh, than the alternative all go to the sense that people who are fatigued are saying we are right to be fatigued about this government because we feel that it is now exhausted its resources and it's time for a change. Um, I just pull on one, one little point um, in what Chantal said um, that really does resonate with me based on all of my years of kind of measuring what makes voters kind of enthusiastic about a political choice. Um, it, it almost feels as though the Liberal Party brand um, slogan has been has become "We'll have your back," and implied in that is you're going to need that. There's going to be problems, and it communicates in a subtle way things that are the that that this government has been surrounded by headwinds, many of which they didn't create, but all of which are stressful for people. If you think back to what Justin Trudeau ran on and won on, in addition to fatigue with Stephen Harper, he built enthusiasm around the better is always possible um, idea. And I can well understand why people who are inside um, the liberal tent can think, well, we better tell people that we'll have their backs. And we better say it as often as we can so that they understand that we will have their back when the next bad thing happens. But inevitably, you're acknowledging that more bad things will happen. And the thing that I noticed about Pierre Polyev is that the mix of him saying everything is broken to everything can be great again, just like bring it home. That's his, I find that a little bit of a wonky slogan, but he's describing a future where there are no problems. Um, increasingly. And why is he doing that? Because I think he understands that that's the, that's the essential ingredient to create that kind of chemistry, that enthusiasm, and that he doesn't necessarily need to always focus on everything that he thinks is broken because Justin Trudeau broke it. Now, it sounds like I'm, I'm heaping praise on him, and that is not my point. My point is that politicians exist in a, in a communications game or framework where 
you, you need to be careful whether you're communicating subtly, maybe unintentionally, things that are harmful to your uh, to your prospects. And I think that is a little bit true with that kind of the the endless have your back uh, sloganing by the by the liberals in the last few years. Yeah, the have your back from them and the common sense solutions from the other. Uh, the other side, you know, you ha- I had a, a letter yesterday on the kind of your turn section of, of, of the bridge. And it was an interesting letter because it was saying, you know, if there were common sense solutions to everything, there would be no problems, right? But some things don't lend themselves to easy common sense solutions, you know, and racism, homophobia, and the list went on. There was a, a few of them that the letter writer had written. And said, you know, get away from that kind of uh, description of uh, how you're going to solve everything. Uh, let me ask this one last question on this point. And the answer may seem obvious, but it, as we've both, all three of us have learned over over time, uh, you get caught up in the moment. You tend to think, wow, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened. Um, but so let me ask it, uh, with, given that in the background, is, is the situation the liberals are facing now the biggest sort of crisis of uh, image and confidence that their government has had since first elected in 2015 and uh, and the same for Justin Trudeau and his leadership. Is this the moment, the biggest moment uh, of challenge that he and they have faced? Um, Chantal? I've faced no because they have faced uh, situations like a pa- the pandemic to name just one or Donald Trump's uh, ascendancy uh, that were serious challenge but is this the biggest crisis that they are undergoing or they have undergone yes it's bigger than SNC-Lavin uh, because the ties that bind that caucus have been unraveling because um, there's always a moment when you watch something happen to a government and you kind of feel like everything you assumed is no longer valid. That happened to me when I, uh, one day in, in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, uh, when I suddenly heard or overheard Lucien Bouchard dictating his resignation letter from the Mulroney government. And it, I, I was standing in a hallway when I heard this dictation. And it felt to me like the floor of parliament, I was in the House of Commons building, was kind of shifting under my feet because uh, everything he was doing had such immense consequences for what would happen to that government going forward, as it did for years to come, uh, that this was one of those points of no return. I had, and I'm not the only one, a bit of the same feeling when uh, when Justin Trudeau went to the microphone last week and started carving out his signature policy. This was a day that I never believed that I would witness. We talked about Pierre Poiliev uh, getting the best gift he could hope for. I don't think he ever woke up uh, from a dream where he was getting that gift. But it it so it created such a, a breach of trust between the prime minister who campaigned in two elections, who went to the Supreme Court to plead the need for a national carbon pricing scheme uh, to be saying what he was saying and presenting it as a, this is uh, great for the climate, uh, what I'm doing, using the heat pumps, uh, the fig leaf of the announcement uh, was a heat pump, not very comfortable, by the way. Um, I believe that, that I if I if Justin Trudeau goes down one way or another, that the, the, the point of no return will have been that day. Bruce? I think the uh, I generally agree with Chantal that it's not the biggest crisis in terms of what's an actual crisis that would have been the pandemic. Um, in terms of the biggest political risk um, or the hardest one to manage, this is definitely that. Uh, and it's that in part because um, the Liberal Party is well behind in the polls. Um, their leader is trailing uh, the other um chief competitor in terms of who Canadians think would make the best prime minister. I don't recall that having been the case at any time in the last eight years um, after Justin Trudeau first won. 
And because the uh, the problem here isn't um, something that went bump in the night and that sort of emerged on the government's radar screen, it, it's a it's a choice that they made based on internal discussions that went on presumably for some time, and the outcome of which, um, I don't know. I mean, if you if you looked at it and said everything is a cold calculation of political upside and downside, it'd be hard to, at this point, say, well, we're going to get all those extra votes uh, in Atlantic Canada uh, in exchange for destabilizing our relationship with all of those who, with us in business, in the, um, in the voluntary sector, who have stood with us and defended the idea of a carbon price, the idea that of the carbon price that we put in place, where we said it isn't costing people money, it isn't co- destroying their cost of living because of the um, uh, the rebates that were going back to people. Um, so you have all of those people who've invested some of their political capital, some of their share of voice behind an idea that didn't need to be undercut, as I understand it, really. There was a way for the government to have people's backs that didn't involve saying this thing that isn't a problem with your cost of living, we're going to deal with it anyway, because it sounds like because the other guys beat us up uh, in the public square. So it's the hardest political crisis. It comes at, at, at a particularly difficult time, deep into the or well into the third mandate, um, where they're behind in the polls. And it's it's something that they triggered, not that their opponents triggered. It also doesn't help that, uh, from my understanding, uh, a majority in cabinet actually believed that this issue or this notion had been rejected and that the debate had been put to rest uh, and then discovered they'd been overruled by the prime minister. So when when the, most of the members on your team have argued against something and who, uh, and it leads to a number of, of them having the really human reaction of saying, we told them so. Nothing that has happened since this announcement was not clear from the moment that the prime minister opened his mouth last Thursday. It's not as if oh, surprise, this didn't play out the way we expected. It's There is nothing I have seen that could not have been predicted and or was not last weekend. All right. Uh, we're going to take our last break, come back with our uh, final segment right here on uh, Good Talk for this week. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Good Talk. Chantel and Bruce are here. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Um, we're into our final segment. Uh, there was a Leger poll this week on national institutions and the fact that Canadians, many Canadians, uh, ha- had lost trust in, in the whole idea of certain national institutions. Um, we've talked about this some areas before. Bruce, I think you've even done some data on it in the past. Uh, Anything surprising in the direction that this is going, and why is it going this way? Well, I I hate to sound like the optimist here, uh, but go for I it. Thought, I thought, <laughs> given the kind the kinds of things we've been watching south of the border, uh, the fact that a significant majority of Canadians put elections can. Canada as the institution they trust most. This, despite the fact that more voters, as everyone knows, voted for the Conservatives in the past two elections, who still lost the election, speaks to a a degree of understanding in the face of populism and fake arguments uh, that does honor not only to voters, but to the political leaders who have never played in the movie of the election was stolen from our party. I mean, the conservatives here. Uh, I also thought, given everything we've seen south of the border that a, and all the commentary in this country, that for such a significant majority to have trust in the Supreme Court um, it was really uh, interesting. When you consider, for instance, that the Supreme Court uh, is often described 
in Quebec, but not exclusively anymore, as always leaning the way of the federal government, etc. It's not as if uh, there has not there have not been discussions as to whether the Supreme Court is biased in favor of federalism or or in favor of the provinces, etc. And every government has taken hits in the Supreme Court uh, f- for a variety of reasons. And to see to see that level of confidence, uh, I think, says something uh, positive about the way our court system has evolved compared to what we've been seeing, again, uh, just south of the border. Bruce? I mean, there, there are, there, there's clearly, uh, Chantel's right in, in those two, certainly two high points in this survey, but there's some, there's some pretty devastating low points too. The, the media figure is way down, like way down, trust in media. Um, you outlined some of the reasons for that a little earlier about, you know, depressing news and people are tired of it all. Um, but the trust factor, man, if you don't have trust in the media, you're really looking at a different world, um, potentially. But anyway, Bruce, go ahead. Well, I was really up for Chantal to take us out on an optimistic note. And so uh, I don't have anything to say. Thank you. Be careful your, about Chantel. the media. Have a great weekend. No, here's what I do. Here's what I would say. Look, I think the um, there has been a long-term uh, decline in how people answer that question about trust in a wide variety of institutions. And when I think about it in a positive way, I think about it being healthy that people are skeptical uh, of whatever any institution might say to them on any given day. When I think about it and I put on my dystopian hat, which as you know, I, I wear regularly, I think that it is a, um, it is the signal of a growing and corrosive cynicism. And uh, I don't think that we know whether or not there's a certain a kind of trajectory that goes through healthy skepticism towards corrosive cynicism, but it's a reasonable hypothesis, I think, especially when we see how it plays out in conversational terms on social media platforms. I do think that the question of trust in the media is a, a slightly more unique question because we have watched in the in the last couple of decades the development of these extraordinarily high profile um, media platforms which um, if you were a conservative minded American and you turned on MSNBC there would be reasons why you might not trust that they were giving you all of the information uh, that they should give you and the same is true for liberal minded um, viewers who who might watch Fox, that's not an indictment of MSNBC or Fox. Um, they both have their flaws, but it is a, a, a to me, it's been clear that people aren't wrong or as wrong if they ever were wrong to imagine that there are political agendas within media enterprises, and that sometimes that affects the way in which news is pre is packaged and presented to them. That's not a that's not about the individual reporter or the idea of journalism as a profession. It just seems to me that uh, we've traveled some distance there, and that if, if people don't necessarily have an automatic trust in media, um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but it is something that hopefully media organizations will take seriously and try to work on. Yeah, but then look at the question. Uh, if I were asked, do you have trust in the media? I'm not sure I'd answer yes. What do okay, you mean? Agreed. Well, would you agreed. answer yes to this open-ended question? Do you no. trust the media? What am I saying here? What do I trust? That I trust Fox? Uh, or, or, or that I trust... But it's to me the question. The more interesting question is to ask uh, by putting labels on what you call the media, not just this open-ended question. To which, no, I mean, for many people, the media includes the something called social media. Yes. So yeah, I agree. I agree. With I, you. I find the question meaningless, so I'm not paying attention to the answer, but otherwise I'm with Bruce on the, uh, yes, good if uh, people come to the media with uh, some version of skepticism, because we are not um, infallible, and we should not be followed blindly. 
I've got two minutes left, which is probably unfair to raise a whole new topic. Uh, but let's get let's just take a run at it. Um, for the last I don't know half dozen years, we've uh, we've looked at the Legault government in Quebec as perhaps the most stable, the most popular, the one doing um, you know clearly not in trouble. Now all of a sudden, in the last little while, that's being reassessed. What's happening to Legault, Chantal? Oh, governing is hard. Uh, and the the Coalition Avenir Québec came to power as a rookie government, first time in power, just before the pandemic, and basically ran Quebec over the course of the pandemic and did a decent job. And then an election came and the party was re-elected. But now the normal things of governance, having to fix healthcare, making sense of uh, of your education policy, there's a negotiation ongoing with the public sector. The teachers are about to go out on strike on Monday in Montreal. They may all go out on strike for forever as of November 23rd. Uh, all these things are unresolved. And at the same time, the, prime, the premier has been... Uh, it's really hard to describe uh, how François Legault has been coming out with policies contradicting himself on on, on issues. Uh, it's been all over the map over the past uh, two months. Ever since he lost a by-election in Quebec City to the Parti Québécois, I think part of what's happening is one François Legault. Uh, thought he walked on water, and now he's got wet feet. Uh, but the other thing is. Um, he is in fear that his coalition is going to split apart if the sovereignist members of it go back to the PQ and he tries to keep them. The federalist members of the coalition will go back to the liberals. He is in a really fragile spot. And at this point, he is in his head in a place where he listens to no advice. So he gets the numbers he gets and he's three years from an election. A lot can happen. Good, but also bad in three years. Yep. Governing is not easy, as you say. Um, and nothing's forever. All right. Chantel, Bruce, thanks both very much. Good conversation, as always. Uh, and thank you out there for listening. I'm Peter Mansbridge. We'll, uh, we'll be back with The Bridge on Monday. Mm-hmm.